Before we start, I want today's game to actually mean something. You've all been wasting each other's time lately. Let's try not to do that today. Who's going first? I can, I can go. Alright, Jane, go ahead. So, um... Hi. I don't know, um... This week has been pretty good, I guess. Um, I don't know. It's been fine. It's fine. So, I think I told you guys um, last week I started at this new job. And it's a really good job. Like, the place is really great, and everyone is, like, really nice. Um, like, it hasn't been that long, but fingers crossed, so far so good. Um, <clears throat> I still feel like, um, like no one there really likes me, uh, even though they've all been super nice. And it just feels like it's going to be the same thing as usual, like, everybody hates me and talks behind my back. And I just, I don't know, I like, I know I'm not qualified to have a job there and I feel like I'm just a fake going into work every day. And I'm really freaked out also that they're gonna find out like that I come here too and then they're gonna think I'm like a freak. Are you embarrassed to be here, Jane? No, no, it's not, it's not that. Obviously she's, she's embarrassed. She thinks she's a freak. You are a freak, Jane. You hate yourself, and you're right to hate yourself, and if that's too much for you, I can always throw you off the Golden Gate fucking bridge. Taylor, no threats. That's the rule. Sorry. We are here to express ourselves to each other. To call each other out on our bullshit. To cop out and lay out all the fake-ass stories we have going on. That's how we get well. Should we say the prayer? I think it would be good if we all said the prayer. All right. Please, Please let, let me, me first, first and always examine myself. Let me be honest and truthful. Let me seek and assume responsibility. Let me understand rather than be understood. Let me trust and have faith in myself and my fellow man. Let me love rather than be loved. Let me give rather than receive. Very good. Jane, continue. Well, I guess I just, like, want everyone there to like me. I feel so fucking sorry for you, you meek bitch. Mm. It's like you know they should kick you out on your ass and you think we're gonna tell you you're wrong. We aren't going to. Have you ever considered that they might be right? Well, I... I, hey, well, I why are you acting like a little kid? You're, bl you're blubbering. I just, She's blubbering. <laughs> I just feel overwhelmed. It's I'm pathetic. You come in here and whine and slump over and act like you're the most persecuted little girl in America. Mark's right. Look at how you're sitting. You're curled up there. Are you trying to make us think you're a baby? You're trying to make us feel sorry for you? <laughs> now, Jane, listen to what the group is saying. Jane, you know you're not special. You know you're not wonderful. Somehow, you think you're the most unique thing on Earth. You have imposter syndrome? Well, you are an imposter. You're impersonating a human being and you're fucking terrible at it. I mean, we do this every time with this boring cunt. She comes in <laughs> here and complains, and then she acts like a fucking child to shut down any talk about what's actually going on. Bitch, no one is mean. No one cares. No one fucking yeah. cares about yeah, you. Look, girl, I would level with you, but I mean, actually, no. 
I honestly don't care. Sammy. Okay, fine. Well, fix your shit up. Actually, literally, sit up straight. Stop being such a fucking baby all the time. Your sad sack moping isn't going to help anyone. You know, it actually hurts me because it hurts to be around you. When was the last time you washed your fucking hair? Honestly, do you shower? I mean, seriously. Because you're just slimy and greasy. I sound like fucking Jordan Peterson. Do you like him? Do you even read? You think you're so fucking smart? Do you read? Can you read? Look, okay? Yeah, I'm new to the program, but I'm sorry. Let me fucking defend myself for a second. <laughs> Every time I'm here, you guys just accuse me of shit that isn't even true. You don't give me anything. I'm working on my shit. All you do is just say I'm a loser, that I'm a dumb bitch, that I feel sorry for myself. Mm -hmm. But I'm right because there is something pathetic about me, but it's also pathetic to feel sorry. Sorry, and fuck you, Sammy. You act super chill with me outside, you confide in me, and then you just fucking turn on me in here. You're keeping Sammy's secrets, Jane. Where did keeping secrets get you out there? Nowhere. And where are you now? Where's all this thinking gotten you? Nowhere. I can tell. And do you know who you are? Do you really know? I don't. I don't know. I don't know who I am. So you're lost. You're broken, and you have no idea who you are. And you think anyone actually likes you? <laughs> Do you think we do? I just, I, I want to be a regular person. But you're not, are you? You're not a regular person. You're all fucked up. There's something wrong with you and everyone can tell. I know. It's okay, Jane. You're fucked. <laughs> but we're putting you whole again. God help us, we'll teach you to be a regular human being one day. Someday you might be able to look another person in the eyes. <laughs> Sammy, why don't you tell the group what Jane was gossiping about? Nothing, I don't know. Jane's fucking tripping. I don't know what she's talking about. Come on, Sammy. Tell them what you told me. Are you fucking serious? I deal with my shit when I come in here. You don't have to. You're special. It's not like that. Sammy's always above it all. She thinks because she's been here the longest that she's special. She's got it all figured out, though. Right, Sammy? Waste of time for you to even be here. Sammy always acts like that. I'm telling you. Shut the fuck up, Mark. You always act like a fucking robot. It's just how Sammy is. She acts like a spoiled fucking bitch mm -hmm. all the fucking time. Mm -hmm. And you can also tell that she's rich, too. Mm -hmm. uh, what did the fuck did you say your dad does again? What is he, like a fucking CEO? You're spoiled. You're pretentious. Do you know how condescending you sound when you talk to us? You still think you're at fucking college. You bury yourself in books. Oh, philosophy. Oh, Deleuze. Oh, I'm so smart. And guess what? My tits are big too. Well, your tits aren't that big and you're not that smart. No one in the real world cares about your school unless you wear that fucking sweatshirt. No one can even tell you went to college. You can't fool anyone. You have no idea anything about me. Maybe you don't know anything about you, Sammy. Jane, what did Sammy tell you? Jane, Secrets. Jane, what did Sammy tell you? I... Secrets. Secrets. Okay. Stop fucking pestering her, okay? I don't know. Um, Jane and I were talking, and she was telling me about this guy. You know, that guy. The guy. What? I don't remember his name. Malachi. Okay. Malachi. She was telling me about that guy again, and... I, I just was telling her about some, it just like brought up some other shit and I was telling her about it and that's it.
Not gonna work, Sammy. Not good enough. Yeah, this is such bullshit, Sammy. Yeah. Okay, fuck. Fine. 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 Come on. Fine. I'll go, you fucking freaks. Idiot with small boots. <laughs> okay, so Jane is telling me about the guy and how he's still with his girlfriend, but he's always texting her and she's, you know, she said it a thousand fucking times and she's crying or whatever. So I started feeling sorry for her. So I was telling her about when I was seeing this guy in college and it just went bad and that's why I love uh, Do we seriously have to hear about college again from you? Sammy, say what you mean. Like, I don't fucking believe you. This is such bullshit. Uh, whatever. You guys think you know all this shit about me? Before I came here, I was in school. We know you were in school! <laughs> okay, I was in school, and I met this guy. Oh, she met a guy! So I met this guy, and he was older than me. Uh-huh. And he was assured, and, you know, he was hilarious. He would just, like, command the room. Not like a total like quarterback uh, type, whatever, but not not like that either. Anyway, we dated for forever, like it felt like forever. Um, and I just loved him so much. And he would drink sometimes, and sometimes it would spin out of control, and then he would hit me. And the first couple of times, he would apologize and, you know, I was young so I didn't know things happen and, you know, bad is just like what it is. And, but then it was more often and, you know, it sounds ridiculous but I was just younger. I don't know. I just, I really loved him so much. And so he came home one day and he said that he was going to move to California and that he got like some job writing in LA and he said that we should get married. It's stupid, right? Like yeah. why, why would, mm -hmm. I mean like why would I do that if this guy is hitting me? But you know, it, it was a perfect moment to walk away or whatever, but I just said yes. And so we moved to California, and right before he left, I found out that I was pregnant. And he's like, you know, come out here, like, let's fucking do this. And so I leave school, and I didn't really want to be there without him anyway, and I had like a year or so left, so I just said fuck it, and I came out here. And I thought things would be different if we were in California, and with the baby and stuff, and like he wouldn't drink as much and get his shit together. But that's not what happened. And then one night he just went out and I never saw him again. And then I lost the baby and I don't know, I think like it was all the stress. And then I moved in here and it's just been three years now, and sometimes I just feel like I'm just where I started, or worse, 
and I feel like I can't make connections with anybody and it just feels like sort of everything slipped away except for the program and I just like living in fear that something is going to happen to this too. Do you think your dead baby would be proud of you? What? If your baby had lived, do you think it would now be a little boy or little girl and that little boy or girl would be proud of you? Or love you? I don't know. Answer, you do know. You think your baby would want a mother that was content to get slapped around by some psycho? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't have, I don't have, I have no idea. How am I supposed to know? That's not yes, it's not no, but it's not yes. Feel that baby. Did you protect it? What? I don't know. So you did protect it. I, I just, stop asking me this. You can't recognize a good man or a good question, can you, Sammy? Do you think you failed or succeeded? I, th I think I failed. Aww. No. The college student with a dead baby finally knows what it means to be honest. Do you ever want to kill yourself to be with your dead baby? I sometimes, sometimes want to die. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone here can tell. So get with it. Get your shit up. We know how all this makes you feel. I ask everyone that. How does this make you feel? The answer with you is always sad. Sad, sad, sad. Now I'm asking you to fucking do something yeah. about it. Can you? Yes. I don't believe you, but I think if you work at it, maybe you can. Or at least you can get better at lying. Taylor? What? You had anyone fuck you in the ass lately? You suck any cock lately? Yeah, Taylor, you suck anyone's cock lately? I know you have. What do you think you're gonna find down there, Taylor? Do you think you're gonna be happy? You know I'm not happy. Everyone knows you're not happy, cocksucker. We can smell it on you. Okay. How is it that everyone here has you completely sussed out except for you? You still fucking around with poppers, you shitty faggot? Mm. Have you figured out if that qualifies as you getting fucked up or not? I don't do poppers, and I don't do anything. Except maybe lie to yourself. I know you gay guys sniff poppers so you can get fucked easier. But you're saying not you. Taylor doesn't need to. What is wrong with you, Jake? Why the fuck does every week come around and you just lash out at women? You scream at women. And then you get laser focused on my asshole. Oh, you know why. You come in this room and act like I'm some fucking sex-obsessed freak when all you want, all you want, you would, you would die for just a woman to just touch you. <laughs> I don't even think you really care who touches you, Jake. Yes. <laughs> you don't exist. Nope. Anytime anyone even breathes on you, you feel validated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, why is it that the only way you can interact with people is through negative attention? That's totally not <laughs> true. Yeah, it is. <laughs> You're fucked. You're an addict. You can't control yourself around those little pills that old ladies take. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? You know what's wrong with me, Sammy. You all do. I like to get high. I'm sorry I don't have the same stupid fucking problems at work. Like you all do. We have changed. At least I'm... Fuck you. At least I'm changing myself, alright? You aren't changing much of anything. Yeah, I think you'd be better off on dope. You seem miserable. And you, you know what, Jake? You make me miserable. You're ugly, stupid, the most unlikable piece of shit I've ever been around. Why don't you walk out those doors right now and sniff some fentanyl and die, Jake? Oh, no, he's... I think he's too scared to die. I mean, he fucked up living so bad. He's 
probably afraid he'd make an asshole out of himself dying. Yeah, but too. who's fucking saying this? Look at you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Ooh. Fuck you. Fuck you. And fuck you. Fuck all of you. And fuck. I don't even remember who that person is. Yeah, I can't even remember your name. You just sit there and you just listen. Smug. I mean, are you even fucking paying attention? Hey, any big thoughts lately? Or are you just listening to this while you sit on your fucking ass? Pretending to work, just sitting there listening to us, waiting for the clock to run down. God, if I had to live like that, I would kill myself. Are we sure you're not already dead? Hello? Oh. Hello? Oh, they're, they're catatonic, oh. just sitting there. Like a corpse, probably just hearing everything we say and then just immediately forgetting it. I would hate to live like that. Oh, oh are, are you mad? This isn't the story that you tell yourself? Oh, and, and you think you can do better than us. Oh, oh yeah, is, is that right? You think you yeah, can do better? Can you do anything at all? Have you ever done anything in your life besides listen to podcasts? If you were your father, would you be proud of you? I don't think so. So fucking smug and intelligent. You think you know better than us? You're a fucking retard. Would you be proud of you? Do you think these people are your friends? Get back to work. Why did you lose this to No one cares what you think. You're addicted to me. Alright, that's it everybody. Thanks for your honesty. The general meeting tonight is at 6 p.m. in the main hall. That was fun. Does anyone want to get coffee? Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Did you know Charles Diedrich coined this? Of all the things that came out of Synanon, the haircuts, the silly lingo, the thousands and thousands of people, that's the thing that'll last the longest. What it's saying is that each day you're given an opportunity to make a brand new start. Now Carl Rogers called encounter therapy the most rapidly spreading social invention of the century and probably the most potent. For as much as this practice has been pretty much debunked, he is, in a way, not wrong. The basic idea of encounter therapy was that through manipulating an environment, namely a group environment or a social environment, one could induce powerful, thrilling, and agonizing emotions in participants. Now, it's obvious that this style of group therapy is extremely volatile, but it's important to point out that it's psychologically inflationary as well. New and novel techniques are needed to continue delivering the required emotional kick. 
For Abraham Maslow, that meant dabbling in nude therapy, a practice that would ruin his reputation. By the late 1960s, he's saying, Nudism, simply going naked before a lot of other people, is itself a kind of therapy, especially if we can be conscious of it, that is, if there's a skilled person around to direct what's going on. Maslow and other practitioners may have felt that way, but most people in this leveled-up group therapy session did not. A lot of them felt uncomfortable. Standing there naked, they would be ridiculed and humiliated, and then sometimes there were the spontaneous and somewhat forced orgies. At Synanon, routinely achieving the highs demanded by intensive encounter sessions meant simply increasing the time. Six- or eight-hour sessions quickly morphed into 12, 24, sometimes 72-hour marathons. It didn't matter that by the early 1970s, emerging research was discrediting the entire practice of encounter therapy. The public was beginning to view these groups as cults. Even proponents of the methods would admit that maybe they went too far, that mistakes were made. Stanford University published one of the first scientific studies on encounter methods in 1971. The researchers randomly assigned 209 students to different encounter groups, where they would meet for a total of 30 hours. While two-thirds of the students dropped out or had a negative experience, the study also produced a 10% casualty rate, meaning students who demonstrated greater levels of psychological stress than before the encounter sessions. These casualties reported crippling anxiety attacks, severe depression, feelings of inadequacy and shame, withdrawal from others and their surroundings, and total psychological shutdown. It's important to note that two therapists in this study were Synanon group leaders. Their groups had the highest casualty rates. The study noted that encounter group casualties may have been caused by what they call input overload, as participants were so overstimulated and challenged that they were stuck in a maelstrom of confusion and uncertainty. Here, from the study, is a description of the process. These peak experiences, the results as they are of external pressure, distortion, or threat, carry a great potential for rebound and for equally intense opposition to the very things that initially seem so liberating. Such imposed peak experiences are essentially experiences of personal closure. Rather than stimulating greater openness to the world, they encourage a backward step into some form of embeddedness, a retreat into doctrinal and organizational exclusiveness, and into all-or-nothing emotional patterns more characteristic of a child than of an adult. Back at Synanon, however, the search for new peaks continued. The game wasn't enough. So Chuck began to experiment with even stranger ways for the members to get their emotional fix. There was the stew, a marathon, sometimes 90-hour game session for new members with a rotating cast coming in and out. There was the polarizer, an educational game. There were games for mothers and sons, husbands and wives, work games, school games, family games. But dissipations were Chuck's first real stab at making a new kind of game, and they formed the basis for all later developments. Dissipations involved marathon game sessions up to 72 hours long and focused heavily on reliving and reenacting childhood traumas. The hallmarks of a dissipation were lack of sleep, hunger, and extended time in extreme emotional discomfort. The next discovery made by Chuck and company was called The Trip, which he built on top of the dissipation. 
The trip was, essentially, intended to get members high without the use of drugs. Remember, Chuck's LSD experience was the defining factor for much of the rest of his life, and he had such a mind-bending time while under the influence that he knew he had to bring it to his people. While huge parts of the trip could be spent in games, there was also large sections of play-acting childhood trauma and particularly horrible experiences from one's adult life. The trip was loaded with ritual. The buildings were lit by candles and smelled of incense, and the trippers were changed into white robes and led around by trip guides and purple ones. Endless sessions of the game followed. At times, a tripper might find themselves role-playing, with as much detail as possible, their rape or overdose. Each layer of ritual confession built upon the other. Music was played, hours passed. There were sudden discussions of Socrates or other philosophers, or lectures by Chuck on any topic you could imagine. Picture this, you're careening from reliving the absolute worst moment of your life to lying flat on your back while jazz music blares before sitting cross-legged next to flickering candlelight as a man in a purple robe looks unbleaking into your eyes and lectures you about Walden Pond. This would go on for days. Trippers would achieve states of perfect delirium. Have you ever been hungry for a long time? Really hungry? Mix that in with weeping and no sleep and forget about using the bathroom. You start to go insane. The crazy things you're being made to do, they don't start to make sense, but the fact that they don't make sense starts to matter less. And so when women called witches, wearing black and white robes, come out by candlelight carrying Ouija boards without a hint of irony, you hardly even notice. It's of course impossible to replicate the effects of LSD just from hunger and staying up too long. You can, however, hallucinate. You can also go mad. And that's what would happen in the trips. The guides would suss out who was the most susceptible to breaking and break them first. The others would follow their example, not wanting to be left out or seen as someone who didn't get it. They would weep, crawl around on the floor, debase themselves, and then they'd hold each other. At the end, they were to lie down on the floor. Soft music was played, and a gentle voice summed up their experience. This was the trip. Now, if you recall, Chuck's acid trip was administered by a man named Dr. Sidney Cohen at the Neuropsychiatric Institute of UCLA. Decades later, Dr. Cohen, in an interview with ABC News, was asked about the government's interest in funding these types of experiments and what became of them. I know that some of the studies which the CIA had supported included as subjects people who later became strong proselytizers of LSD. By the early 1960s, the government had already labeled LSD as a psychotomimetic, meaning a drug that mimics the symptoms of psychosis, including delusions and paranoia. In spite of this, the tests continued. Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, the man funding the experiments on junkies out at Lexington from episode one, oversaw the highly classified CIA project known as MKUltra. We still don't know very many of the details of the program. In the 70s, Sidney was ordered by Richard Holmes of Watergate fame to destroy basically all documentation. But from what we do know, it went something like this. There was a total of about 149 MKUltra projects with 33 sub-projects on the control of human consciousness, specifically. There were at least 185 researchers at over 80 institutions, including 44 universities and 12 hospitals. Now, there were two phases to MKUltra. The first included extremely bizarre experiments, esoteric even. 
involving hypnosis and hallucinogenic drugs. The second phase was more controversial research into the power of human psychological practices, including what the agency called terminal experiments. These were ones they knew could end in death. Dr. Lewis Jollyon West, who headed the Neuropsychiatric Institute at UCLA for 20 years, had been corresponding with Dr. Sidney Gottlieb on his experiments into mind control, hypnosis, and suggestion. Jolly West, as he was known, had an almost Forrest Gump-like capacity to appear at some of the most significant events in American 20th century history, including the Patty Hearst trial, the LA riots, and the death of Jack Ruby. Most of Jolly's research focused on brainwashing techniques, specifically in cults. He was interested in sleep and sensory deprivation, and what it would take to completely break someone's mind. Here's Jolly on potential strategies. What happens in coerced confinement can be called the three Ds, uh, debility, dread, and dependency. A prisoner is debilitated by inactivity, by sleep loss, or worse, by physical harm. He is filled with dread by constant threats of pain or death or harm to his family. He is rendered completely dependent upon his captors for information, food, shelter, life. The CIA put together their findings and recommendations into the infamous Kubark Manual, a step-by-step guide for proper interrogation practices. It's important to understand that it is these experiments that shaped the psychological tools our military and covert agents used to extract information and manipulate targets. But it wasn't until six or seven years ago that we fully understood the scope of this research. The investigations into the CIA's activities at Abu Ghraib and other black sites around the world uncovered previously unknown horrors. In one internal memo, the CIA's chief of medical services directly links the infamous enhanced interrogation units in Iraq back to the early psychological research done by the military out in California, writing, The antecedents of this unit had overseen much of the MKUltra interrogation research in the 1950s and 1960s and published still relevant classified papers on the merits of techniques and assisted directly in early interrogations. But it's in the Senate Intelligence Committee's report, an over 6,000-page investigation into how these sites operated, that the influence of all this early research is really felt. Inside that report are the gruesome details of interrogation and confinement, waterboarding, sleep deprivation, dosing people with drugs against their will, forcing someone into contorted stress positions for hours, or sometimes days on end, stripping men and women naked, unyielding verbal abuse and psychological assault, sexual humiliation, blaring music on loop combined with blinding, battering light. A team of psychologists contracted by the CIA designed these tactics and were asked to develop methods that would increase aggressively over time. They were also asked to provide assurances that none of these techniques would cause lasting mental harm. The discovery of these black sites and the cozy relationship between the military, the CIA, and the APA in developing legal and ethical cover for psychological and physical torture was a complete scandal. But some doctors weren't interested in apologies. In an interview with NPR in 2009, a psychologist from the Bagram torture camp in Afghanistan said... Psychologists who are supposed to be do-gooders, you know, the idea that they would be involved in producing some pain just seems to be something that would be wrong because we do no harm. 
But the real ethical consideration would say, well, by producing pain or questioning of somebody, if it does the most good for the most people, it's, it's entirely ethical. Anyone who wants to throw stones in this situation really needs to step back and, and figure out what they would do themselves in these situations and um, not just uh, kind of be ivory tower critics either get in the situation or keep or really keep their mouths shut if they don't most of the time they have no idea what they're talking about Now, when Synanon hits the scene in 1958, there was nothing like it in the world. But things changed, and the group's popularity inspired a wave of similar programs that were, oftentimes, run along more professional lines. One of the earliest such places was Daytop Village in New York City. Daytop Village, originally just called Daytop, for Drug Addicts Yield to Persuasion, was started by Daniel Casriol on explicit Synanon lines as the second rehabilitation center in America, primarily catering to those with felony drug convictions. Many of Daytop's early staff were former members of Synanon. Daytop is a really interesting place. They shaved newcomers' heads when they came in to symbolize their new life, and the patients lived highly regimented lives. But, caught up in the sweep of the late 1960s, they underwent a split between radical communist attic teachers and the clergymen and psychiatrists who ran the place. A 1968 New York Times headline reads, Narcotics Complex Split by Charges of Cultist Activity. The article states what turns out to be true. Executive Director David Deitch, a former Synanon member, led the other ex-addict staffers and the majority of the residents in a communist revolt against the academics and clergymen who ran the institution. Eventually, the board regained control, and the grants from the state started flowing again. Daytop's still around, although after a series of mergers, it's now called Samaritan Daytop Villages. It is mostly known for Nancy Reagan's 1980s visit to the program, after which she declared that people should just say no to drugs. Other programs emerged out of Synanon, too, like Delancey Street in San Francisco, started by a longtime Synanon member in 1971, which still runs the exact same program, but with expanded rules, that Synanon had in that period. While they now claim there is no connection to Synanon, the fact is, if you check into Delancey Street today, you'll be in a game tomorrow. Then there's Walden House, also in San Francisco, a residential detox and drug treatment program headed from the late 60s onwards by an ex-Synanon and Delancey Street member named Alfonso Acampura. So Walden House was actually pretty innovative, and I've known a lot of people who've successfully gone through the program. I also remember when Acampora committed suicide in 2005 with a gunshot to the head after it was revealed that he had siphoned millions of dollars out of the organization. Chuck despised these splitters for stealing his model, watering it down, and partnering with governments in order to spread this sanitized version of his program. None of them had the spirit of Synanon in them, they thought addicts could be reformed and returned to society. The defections and copycat programs caused him to brood and to figure out ways to prevent it in the future. It's hard to trace the exact methodology of all rehabs back to Synanon. While the first batch might have mostly had ex-Synanon members deciding the curriculum, and certainly some weird shit went down at a lot of these places, 
the industry eventually outgrew Sinanon. The trip, the dissipations, the game. At many places, these fell out of favor and were gradually replaced by a more professionalized approach. Drug rehabilitation in America is now a $42 billion industry. The rehab cartels may have evolved past the Sinanon model, but the predatory practices and exploitation of patients remain. Programs for adult drug addicts weren't the only offspring of Synanon. The entirety of what is commonly called the troubled teen industry, or TTI, sprang from it as well. One of Synanon's stated missions was to combat the scourge of juvenile delinquency. And while Synanon's relationship with children was beyond troubling, it was the basis for what is now a billion-dollar industry focused on the supposed rehabilitation of young people. One of the first and most prominent examples was a program called CEDU. That's C-E-D-U. The name itself is somewhat mysterious. While later said to be a vague reference to see, like you do with your eyes, or do, like doing an action, the reality is that CEDU almost certainly stands for Charles E. Diedrich University. And this tracks with the genesis of the organization. The founder, Mel Wasserman, was a square synod adherent, if not a full-time member. He closely studied the methodologies of the organization before pouring his furniture store profits into opening up a Synanon copycat program in 1968. It was aimed squarely at so-called juvenile delinquents and staffed by former Synanon members. And so, Synanon's dissipations, trips, games, all of it was transposed onto the unaccredited group homes that Mel Wasserman opened up. The main school was at Running Springs, a teeny town in a remote part of San Bernardino County next to Children's National Forest. In many ways, the early press that Sidu got mirrored Synanon's mainstream exposure. In reality, Sidu developed a culture of violence, child abuse, and repression that mirrored Synanon's own descent. But unlike Synanon, torturing human beings only helped Sidu grow. The school shook off bad press. It became a symbol of hope for worried parents who were told that if their children were not sent to Sidu, then their children would die. Personally, I find this ironic. Three children very likely died solely because of Sidu. One, Daniel Yun, ran away in 2004 and was never found. The other two vanished in 1993 and 1994. One investigator has raised the possibility that their disappearances might be linked to a serial killer named James Crummel. Crummel was living with a psychiatrist contracted at various teen programs around Southern California at the time. However, others have suggested it's more likely that staffers at the school caused the death of these teens, and then told their parents, and the police, that they'd run away, vanished, without a trace. CEDU would eventually close down in 2005 because of an impending regulatory crackdown and a huge number of lawsuits related to the practices of the program. But CEDU provided the blueprint for nearly every single behavioral modification school, not just throughout America, but across the globe. Now, I have my own personal connection to CEDU. Patrick McKenna, the founder and owner of Monarch School, had been sent to CEDU as a child. He loved it so much that he immediately took a job at Rocky Mountain Academy, CEDU's Idaho campus, after graduating. He lifted their program wholesale when he started up the Monarch School, poaching several employees on his way out. The first time I heard the name Sidu was out of Patrick's mouth when I was 14 years old. It was during the game. 
But we haven't forgotten about Synanon. Synanon's tax problems were growing. The Marin County Assessor and the IRS were breathing down the organization's neck. In classic Synanon fashion, Chuck and his massive legal department cooked up an unorthodox solution. Synanon would become a legally recognized religion. Now, to be clear, no one at Synanon truly believed they were actually becoming a religion. The central tenets of the organization didn't change. In fact, Synanon's dumbass board recorded hours worth of tapes detailing precisely how they were going to fool the IRS by becoming a religion. These would later be revealed in court. Here's a true and on tip. Never, ever, ever tape record any kind of meeting you ever have unless it's with the police. But the power that Chuck held over so many people and the absolute command he had over parts of the organization meant that, in essence, Synanon was a religion, worshipping at the altar of Chuck. And he sought to codify this. In even more classic Synanon fashion, this plan didn't fully work out, and Synanon's tax problems would soon grow to enormous proportions. By the mid-1970s, Synanon had around 200 children living at the Tamales property. Kids came to Synanon in a variety of ways. Some were the children of members who were separated from their parents. Others were sent to Synanon by their probation officers to cure them of their juvenile delinquency. The Tamales Bay property had become something like the Synanon city that Chuck had imagined. While the residency still hovered around five to 600, plus a growing population of children, they had tried as much as possible to integrate themselves into Marin County power structures. Several residents were volunteer sheriff deputies. They had a fire truck, an ambulance, and yes, their own police force too. But relations with the residents of the sleepy towns near Synanon continued to fray. There were brawls. Synanon members began to beat the living shit out of anyone who they thought had crossed them, or might. Paranoia about split ease ramped up. And so, a paramilitary force called Her Majesty's Imperial Marines was born. Her Majesty was Betty Diedrich. They were led by a Vietnam vet who bragged about his necklace of ears during the game. A new type of martial arts was developed, called Sin No. Their motto was Eternal Vigilance. $300,000 worth of guns were purchased. And still, this wasn't enough. They formed a type of National Guard. Synanon's members, most of whom now wore the same blue overalls that Chuck favored, were attacking anybody near their properties who they deemed unsavory. Neighbors were threatened. People were seriously hurt. Ranks were assigned, armbands were issued, marches were performed. Synanon viewed itself as building something like an army. The madness that had begun to infect Synanon in the middle 1960s had blossomed into full-blown psychosis. While residents maintained that they had some freedom to pursue their own recreational desires within the Synanon system, their lives were in large part controlled by Chuck's flights of fancy. In 1975, all the women shaved their heads. Now there was real uniformity at Synanon. The problem of the children had gotten worse. Betty and Chuck now viewed them as dead weight in the organization. At first, it was required to ask Betty for permission to have a child. Sometimes she granted it, sometimes she didn't. Then, all members were asked to voluntarily forego childbirth. In 1976, members were given an ultimatum. The men at Synanon, all of those above age 18, were to have vasectomies or leave the organization. 
Women who got pregnant were made to get abortions, including one rumored to have occurred at nine months. The only children they'd take in were the ones sent by the state. The kids they did have were organized into the punk squads, quasi-military boot camps that sought to instill discipline into children by constant games, denigration, beatings, and military drills. Most of the children hated it. Many fled to nearby farmers' houses, begging to be sent home to their parents. This caused another layer of friction between Sinanon and the outside community. In response to the constant stream of runaways escaping from the punk squads, Sinanon members began to threaten and beat their neighbors in Marin. Membership began to decline. People who had joined Sinanon in the hope of bettering themselves lost faith that Chuck was the type of person who could help with that. The situation grew worse once Betty died in 1977. While she had strange ideas and, like Chuck, exercised extreme power over the members of the group, she had somewhat balanced her husband out. At least she'd been able to occasionally critique him. But once she croaked, all bets were off. Chuck put out applications for a new wife. He selected a 31-year-old woman named Ginny Shoren. While devastated by the loss of Betty, this gave Chuck an idea. What if everybody at Synanon got a new partner? And so, the organization institutionalized remarriages, where partners were separated from each other and then reassigned to other members. 230 couples filed for divorce. Once you have a cadre of dedicated people like those at Synanon, people who hadn't been weeded out by the insanity of the past decade, who could look at any crazy old thing and say, if others are for it, then I'm for it too. That's when you have a group that you can lead. Anyone who objected to the Changing Partners program was put in the game and bullied into either taking it or hitting the road. So it was with everything at Synanon. The game was a mechanism of absolute control, and the dissipations, trips, and overall social pressure whittled off the wobblers and made certain that only true conformists would remain, at least until something happened that was beyond the pale even for them. Synanon now had assets upwards of 33 million. It had a giant fleet of boats, planes, and countless vehicles. There were airstrips being built, more properties purchased throughout California including a fancy new home base in Badger, southeast of Fresno. There was talk of opening up an embassy in Washington, D.C. Synanon, sensing their image was fading, opened up a massive charitable wing, although it was naturally used to make a profit. They donated hundreds of pairs of sneakers to the People's Temple. Despite all of these efforts, things were going off the rails and quickly. Synanon was being hit with constant negative press, and it wasn't just confined to local publications. National news networks ran stories about the strange goings-on up at Tamales Bay. Chuck and company responded with threats of violence upon media executives and their families. Chuck himself insisted on going on TV and making these threats explicit. But remember, Chuck always wanted more. Threats meant nothing without the muscle and willpower to back them up. In 1978, Chuck Diedrich would learn that while he may have, at one time, been good at saving lives, he was an absolute failure in his attempts to take them.
Hi, Brace. Well, Liz. <laughs> so I was thinking, you know, as we've been kind of talking about this, that, you know, you you were kind of, you know, you talked about how your school was basically like a there's a direct line from Sinanon to your school. Yeah. You know, and especially like through the game, right? And that you kind of practice that, you know, or were forced into those fucking therapeutic circles at Monarch, but. Did you guys ever do any of the other kind of Synanon style stuff, the stuff we've talked about, the trip, the dissipations, those things? So, yeah, um, we did. I think, it's, I think it's pretty safe to say that we did. Um, you know, they weren't called, like all this stuff, like the, 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 the way, that, the things they call it changes, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. you might call a game a rap or like whatever, a group, like we called it. Um, we didn't have trips or dissipations, but we had something called insights. Um, we had, I think, around six of them. I went through four, mm. three or four, I think, or maybe three. And like these, they also had these two seminars. Maybe I went through one of the seminars, um, and they were intense. They were more intense than um, than groups or anything like that. Like, you know, before you go through one, you're you know you're you're not allowed to know anything about it. Um, you know, when someone goes through it, you're not allowed to talk to anybody who hasn't been through it about it. You're not allowed to talk to your parents about it. They really, really, really like specify, do not talk to your parents about what happens at these. They kind of make it feel like you have this cool secret in you, but what really it is, it's, it's covering up abuse. Um, and I remember seeing kids go through them before I went through one. And like they had this sort of like otherworldly, like ghostly air about them. They weren't allowed to talk to other students while they were going through them. They didn't come into the dorms until after we were all asleep and they only slept for a very, they left before we were all up. Um, you know, I, I know you didn't eat much and they lasted for several days. So my first one I went through, um, you know, I was really nervous for it. Uh, and I was really nervous that like, this seems to be where like the real breaking happens. Like where a lot of kids like really lose their shit. Um, and, uh, I remember Patrick McKenna, the mm. owner of the school. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he had been to uh, well, I, he had been to Sidu, you know, which is modeled after Synanon, like we talked about. Um, and uh, and like I, I, he was like the big proponent of these. Like he was like they, they were like his real baby there. Um, and uh, and I remember doing this shit. Like I, I it was they were really like several days long. I didn't sleep much. I don't have a I, I honestly don't have a huge memory of like what exactly occurred in a lot of them. I mean, I do vaguely, you know, but I just like not for the second to second. I just remember like specifically there were like a few things that really stood out, which is one, it's like, I remember you had to like sit and look at somebody like, you know, you went through these things in peer groups, like the kids, like you basically went through the program with that kind of got there at the same time as you. And you had to like go to, I think it was everybody in your peer group and say every bad thing you've ever thought about them to their face, everything. Mm. Um, and that was not enjoyable, especially for some kids. Um, you had to do like, you know, we'd have like hours and hours and hours and hours worth of group. Um, there was no hiding at all. Like the counselors would find you and they would break you. Like that was the point of this, like explicitly really the point of this is that they would break you down until you were like a groveling mess and you weren't sleeping. You know, this was for several days long in this sort of mirrored room. Um, 
and you weren't really eating, you weren't really using, you weren't really allowed to use the bathroom. Um, there wasn't really any water. Uh, and it was just like, I remember there was one that was like, integrity is the one I remember the most because I was like, I remember we were like discussing the meaning of the word integrity in that one. And I was like, I don't think that people doing this have that. Um, it was innocence where there was a lot of like kind of pretending to be a little kid and stuff like that. And it's like, they were showing you like, this is who you killed. Like all of your choices, they made you stand up against a wall at one point. And then you had to like talk about all the choices you've made in your life, every choice that you made in your life. And then say like, this leads me to fear and death. This leads me to fear and death. I remember having to like, like, like just say over and over and over again, like everything I do is going to kill me. I am going to die. Like over and over and over, I'm going to die. One point, you know, you're on your fucking knees. There's people pushing down on you. You're screaming like, I don't deserve to live. I don't deserve to live. Like over and over and over. Um, and that's really when you start to lose it, right? Like it's like the repetition of this like really deeply traumatic stuff over and over hour after hour, like day after day, no sleep, no fucking, I mean, a little bit of sleep, but like not much, especially for a, you know, a kid, uh, like no real food, like just over and fucking over and over again. And you know, they had, they had, they had this, like, this is sort of the most notorious thing. Um, you know, the girls in, in some of these would like have to act out like rapes that they had happened to them. Um, you know, like sometimes with male counselors as the rapist sort of playing that role. Um, you know, you'd have to talk about, have to tell everybody every secret you've ever kept from anybody. Like, it was really like this sort of, um, felt like you're being gutted the whole time. And I remember, I remember leaving every single one I went to, I remember leaving and being like, I feel like, I don't think I'm supposed to feel like this. Like, I feel empty. Like, I feel like a husk. I feel like somebody like, I've been, I mean, you, I've had a lot of people beat the shit out of me in my life. Um, and I felt like that. Like, I felt like I had just like been fucking run over by a truck. Um, and, and these things broke, um, they broke a lot of kids at, 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 through these, you know. These were really like, they get you in the fucking, the pot and they boil you. Um, and, uh, I'm, I, you know, it's funny, I kind of like before really started seriously thinking about this stuff, I'd always sort of contributed my being relatively okay compared to a lot of people after coming out from not having gone through all the insights and through like every time I went through one of these, just like every time I went through a fucking game, like in the, in my head was just like, like die, die, motherfucker, die, like over and over, like in the back of my head, like I am not falling for this, you know, and I would lie and I would, um, I would try my best to like not get in this, but they would exhaust you so much that like by the end, I remember like this happened a lot. I mean, they would do this every so often throughout these, but they make you all lay on the ground. Sometimes you have to like cuddle with the, the you know, the adults there and shit like that. Um, and they play like they play songs. And the one I remember the most because it became my most hated song, but also I remember sort of relating to it was the talking heads, uh, watching the days go by. Um, once in a lifetime. Yes, yeah, once in a lifetime. And I remember thinking like, you know, I was like, wait, wait, this is not my beautiful whatever. And I was like, I, my God, I would kill 
to just even have a house or a wife or a car, something that these people didn't own. I don't even care if I recognize it or whatever. Like what I, I just, any, any, that was like this like outside world taunting me. Um, and, uh, and I think it's, it's in those insights that I came the closest to breaking, not just breaking and like going along with the program, like, I, or not even, not just, I don't think I was even gonna break and go along with the program. I thought it was gonna break mentally. Like I thought I would become psychotic or have like a nervous breakdown. And I saw people have what I would call fucking nervous breakdowns in those a lot of times. Become like wretched at the hands of, of like Patrick and the people leading these. Um, it was, I remember vividly actually thinking like, oh, I think this is torture. Like I think they're torturing us. Um, and and I mean, yeah, God, I cannot, I can't even put myself halfway in, in the mind of somebody who would, who would, who would, who would, who would do that to kids. Um, but yeah, uh, it was, it was in those insights that really like the, 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 the evil, the fangs came out for these programs, right? And that's where they had you locked in that room. You weren't allowed to tell your parents about what you'd seen in there. They could do whatever they wanted to you in these. And that's, like I'm saying, where I saw a lot of kids break and a lot of kids lose their minds. On the next episode of The Game, The Story of Synanon, Snakebite, the strange death of Synanon, and the long life of the troubled teen industry. This series is produced by Truanon. Exclusive episodes available at patreon.com slash trueanonpod. Your hosts are Brace Belden and Liz Franzak. The music was written and recorded by me, Young Chomsky. See you next time.